Um, a couple of things I want to talk about, um, and uh, before we jump in, uh, I'm super excited for Teacher Appreciation Sunday. Um, it's a really practical way that we can care for our community by caring for our teachers. Um, and, uh, and if you guys have worked in or around schools, um, you know that there's just not a lot of thank yous all the time. Uh, and so for us to be able to say, hey, we want, we want to just appreciate you. We want to let you know that we care, um, and we want to give you something, just a, a surprise gift, um, and, uh, and we want to be able to pray for them as they go into the coming year. And, and you would be surprised, uh, or you might be surprised, at how many people that would not necessarily go to church on a regular basis, would not necessarily consider themselves to be super religious um, or, or really kind of engaging in any sort of faith, how much they would value and how much I've seen them in the past value being prayed for for the year, for the school year. Um, because it's a lot. Uh, if you guys have been in a classroom, it's a lot. Uh, and so um, we're excited for that. So if you guys know teachers or administrators or counselors um, in your lives, I would love for you to invite them to come out on September 10th. Um, let them know that we just want to thank them, honor them, and appreciate them. We want to pray uh, for them and, and for the school year ahead. Uh, and we're going to invite the, the staff here as well. Um, and actually, on this Thursday, on the 31st, um, we are going to be uh, providing breakfast for 55 staff here at Ensign. Um, they're back to work this week, and Thursday is one of their last days before school comes back into session. Newport Mesa District goes back in on Tuesday, the, the 6th. Fifth, one of those days next week. Uh, I'm not really good with calendars. Um, and, uh, and so we're going to make them breakfast. And uh, I've been talking with the assistant principal. And um, it's so funny just because am I, like, what people expect the church to do, sadly, is not usually that much. Uh, and so when we offered to provide them breakfast, they were blown away. And then she's like, um, we have a lot of meetings and we usually drink coffee. Um, should I plan on getting our own coffee also? And I was like, no, we're going to bring coffee. She's like, oh my gosh, you guys are so amazing. And I was like, lady, we don't do anything without coffee in my church. So I don't know. Like, it's not that amazing. This doesn't happen without coffee. Uh, and so we're excited because one of the greatest things, one of the things that makes me so happy and one of the, I think the most beautiful things that the church can do is surprise people and confuse people, uh, which are two weird words. But people have assumptions about what the church is like. People have assumptions of what the church does or does not do, of how the church acts or does not act, of how the church spends its time and its money or how it doesn't spend its time and its money. And so when we get to confuse people, they're like, you're going to bring us coffee? Like, yeah, we're bringing you coffee. Good coffee, too. Uh, anyways. That wasn't even on my list of things to talk about. Last Thursday night, uh, a few days ago, we had the opportunity to come together with a bunch of churches from the, the city around us. And uh, there was a worship and prayer night called One Voice. It happened. It was hosted over at the Crossings Church. And um, it was an incredible time. Uh, a lot of us, there was a gang of people from our church who were able to be there. Um, there was four different churches that helped lead worship. There was, uh, I think, four or five different churches that helped kind of speak and, and hold different moments in that evening. Um, and it was such a great time for a couple reasons. One, because um, any chance that we get to celebrate unity um, is, a good is a good thing, um, especially in the climate today, just in general. Uh, there's a lot of anger and hostility and tension, and, and even inside the church, um, we find a lot of that. And so for us to be able to come together with churches that are so different, uh, these four or five, I mean, there was eight churches total that were involved in, in Thursday nights, but there's, there's about 30 churches that are a part and have kind of put their hands in and said, hey, we want to be unified for the city of Costa Mesa. We want to care about this place. Um, 
for them to, to put their, their preferences and their, their doctrines aside, kind of like we've talked about over the last few weeks, and say, hey, we're in because of Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and so it was a great time. You were represented well. Edwin uh, and Christopher Lucas were there. They helped lead worship. Uh, it was an incredible time. There was, I don't know how many people were actually there. Ashley, do you have a number of how many people went? I'm going to call you out in the middle of church. Um, does anybody else know how many? I was kidding. Uh, there was, I mean, if I had to estimate, I would say there was probably about 600 people there. Um, and, uh, and it was incredible. These bands, there were, there were these great bands, big, full bands, multiple singers and all this kind of stuff. And it was, uh, I thought it was really great. Uh, when Edwin came up, and it was just an acoustic set, he played his acoustic guitar, Chris played the keys, and it was just really beautiful. Um, not that it was better than the other ones, but it was just like, I love the simplicity of what we have to be able to do, and even this morning, um, because it's not necessarily about who has the biggest band or the smallest band or who has the loudest speakers or the quietest speakers or the best teacher or the, the not best teacher or, or whatever it might be. It's about what we get to be together. And so for us, unity is a big deal. Um, so Thursday night was awesome. You missed out if you weren't there. Um, I think that's it. I feel like I'm forgetting something else, but, uh, but it was a great week. Um, this coming Sunday, I'm excited. We have a special guest teacher coming in. Mike Brooks is one of the pastors at Saddleback Church. Um, he's one of the college pastors or the college pastor there. He's an incredible teacher. Um, he's really, really cool guy. I'm excited for him to come in. He's our first uh, guest speaker to come in that hasn't actually been a part of South Hills. Uh, and so we, we trust him. We love him. We know that you guys are going to trust and love him as well. It's going to be a lot of fun on Sunday. So I make, make sure you guys are here for that. Uh, today, we're wrapping up this series, Outgrowing God. Um, and my only... Um, my only, uh, the, the only downside I can find to this series, I guess, is that we haven't actually created this action figure. Uh, every single week I look at this, I'm like, why didn't somebody make that? Uh, it just makes me laugh every time. So it's been a great series. It's been, um, it's been a challenging series. Honestly, for me, it's been challenging uh, personally uh, because I've really had to wrestle with some things uh, of, of how I believe and how I approach things. Um, and it's also been challenging because these are difficult topics to talk about. Uh, and a lot of people have emotions and feelings and history that they bring into these conversations. Um, and uh, if you guys weren't here, I really... Um, I don't know if I do this regularly, but over the last few weeks, I've just felt this. Uh, I think it would be really good for you, really valuable. I, I hope that you would um, get value from going back and listening, if you missed some of the last few weeks, listening to the last three weeks of this series. Um, they've built on each other a little bit. They've, they've tackled some really difficult topics. Um, we've done, uh, the teaching has been a little bit different. It's been a lot of information. If you guys have been here the last few weeks, there's been a lot of information, a lot of, um, and uh, just kind of bigger concepts that we've been talking about that we don't necessarily talk about on Sunday mornings very often. And, and today I'm excited because we're kind of shifting gears a little bit as we wrap up this series. Um, and uh, there's an aspect of shifting gears that happens in this time of year. A lot of school districts are already back, but the Newport Mesa district doesn't go back until next week. Um, and so we are still hanging on uh, to summer, just kind of by like our fingertips. Uh, and our kids are hanging on to summer, specifically our son Mason. He's six. He turned six this, this week. And uh, I don't think he's fully grasped yet that he goes back to school next week. Um, and, uh, and, but... If you guys have had kids or maybe you have kids in that age range now, there's, there's a piece of kind of at the end of summer. This is our first summer. Uh, this is our first like summer break with a kid that's in school. And there's a piece where 
all hell is kind of just breaking loose. Like the cart is going down the hill and the wheels are starting to fly off a little bit and there's no structure and there's no bedtimes and apparently there's no rules uh, anywhere about anything. And, um, you know, everybody's exhausted and the kids are running the show for sure. Uh, I think that they've had quesadillas and mac and cheese for dinner for like the last three weeks. She's like... I'm not going to fight it. And you know what? I'm going to have that also. And, uh, and so it's just, it's one of those things where patience has been wearing thin um, because there's just, uh, we've moved kind of away from the structure and the routine that we normally have. And it's, it's not necessarily a bad thing. We've had a ton of adventures and a ton of fun stuff that we've done this summer. But at the same time, there's, there's a, a bit of a foundation that you get to stand on when you say like, no, I know what time bedtime is. And I know what time you're leaving in the morning. Uh, and I know what time I'm getting home in the morning. And we have a meal calendar for the week with multiple ingredients. And it's not just cheese and bread and, and some form of those two things. And, and so there's just, it's been crazy. But, you know, one of the things that we've been dealing with pretty much every night for the last two weeks, and it happened again last night, is we finally get everybody to bed. And our kids usually, bedtime's never been a huge challenge for them. But Mason just keeps coming down every night. It's like five minutes after we put him to bed. And some of this is your guys' daily life, and I don't know how you do it. Because uh, the last two weeks have been crazy. He comes down, and, and every night it's something different. Last night we put him to bed, and it was still light outside. Do you guys remember that as kids when you had to go to bed and it was still light outside? And you felt like you were being robbed? <laughs> I don't feel bad as a parent. Uh, but uh, I remember as a kid hating that. But he came down. And uh, it was, I mean, the sun had gone down, but it was still dusk, and there was still light coming in through his window. And he came down, and he was like, I'm afraid of the dark. And I was like, nope, it's not even dark, bro. <laughs> you don't get to use that one. And then a couple of nights ago, he came down, and he said his stomach was upset. He felt sick. And you don't want to be the parent that's like, you know, you call his bluff on that one, and you could end up looking like a real fool. Uh, and so, yeah, sure enough, we give him a bucket, he goes back upstairs, and five minutes later he comes down because he's hungry. Uh, and then five minutes later he comes down because he's thirsty. And, and it's just this, this ongoing thing. But there's, this, there's a part of, of what he's experiencing right now, and I think it's something that we all deal with, is that a lot of times the real reason that we have for things, um, we don't necessarily say, and he's never said, I just don't want to go to bed right now. I want to play still. He comes up with hundreds of other reasons, but he never actually says the words, I just don't want to go to bed right now. And I think that we all do that a lot of times where we come up with these other reasons or excuses. Uh, there's times we don't want to do certain things or go certain places or believe certain ideas or be around specific people. But the reason that we give is not necessarily the real reason why we don't want to be there. Um, nobody has ever been more guilty of this than my wife and I after we had our first baby. We used that kid as an excuse for everything. It was like, oh, we're, we have this thing going on. It's like, oh, sorry, we got the baby. And he's just, you never know what time he's going to go to bed. And every time, you know, there was anything or any, any event or any party or any gathering or any sort of request that we just didn't feel like we could, wanted to be a part of, uh, unfortunately, that had some sort of conflict with our newborn. And as new parents, you just kind of get that excuse. There's a couple new parents here that probably understand that. They're not laughing out loud because they don't want to be caught. Uh, but I get it. Um, but we all do this. We don't give the real reasons behind our decisions. We don't give the real reasons behind our feelings. 
we have this thing inside of us that's hesitant to be honest about the real reasons. And I think oftentimes that's because the real reason is, is kind of just selfish. Um, the real reason is something that we're maybe not like real proud of. But it's the truth. It's, it's, the, it's the truth where we just feel selfish. Sometimes facing the real reason might cause us to face something that's inconvenient or something that's uncomfortable. Um, the real reason might cause us to wrestle with something that's even a little bit painful for us. And so a lot of times we give these, these kind of surface, top level, I'll come up with a couple different ideas. Why? Another thing I was thinking as I was going through this was when we were trying to, we didn't know if we were having, our, our first, we didn't know if we were having a boy or a girl. And so we were talking about names and having that, what are we going to name this baby conversation. And uh, inevitably, one spouse, whenever you're having that conversation, one spouse will for sure inevitably suggest a name of a person that you did not like growing up or a person that you dated at some point. And you have to somehow figure out the, the artistic ninja way of saying, I'm just not really a big fan of that name. Really, why not? I don't know. It just doesn't roll off the tongue. You know, you're trying to figure out. It's like, well, there was this person that I just really hated when I was nine, and that was his name, or that was her, you know. And, and we kind of, there's all these different times in life where we don't want to give the honest reason but, you know, we don't, we don't want to deal with the, the pain or the, the selfishness or the embarrassment of what that honesty might be. I, I was reading this week, and I came across this, and it says that we often make things a categorical issue instead of acknowledging the personal issue. If it's a categorical thing, then it's not my fault. I don't have to do or change anything. If it's a categorical problem, it's, it's not a personal problem. It's, if it's, that's just the way that it is. Uh, I'm not dating anymore because men can't be trusted. That's just a categorical statement. <laughs> Nobody's supposed to cheer at that one. Uh, that's a categorical statement that says this is the way that it is, and it has nothing to do with my personal feelings about that guy that I'm still not quite over yet. It's a categorical statement. I'm going to have to quit my job because everybody there is out to get me. All the people that work there are evil. They're out to get me. Or maybe you're just not really good at time management and you've missed some deadlines and there's some personal things attached to that that cause people to come down on you. I don't have time to do fill in the blank. There's just not enough hours in the day. Or you could not binge watch Game of Thrones all week and find some more hours in the day. There's, there's aspects of these things, and, and these are just silly examples, but there's, there's aspects of our lives where we make these categorical statements. There's like, this is the way that it is. This is the truth. And so I just can't figure it out. I can't deal with it. It's not my responsibility. It's a categorical claim, and it relieves us from feeling any sort of personal responsibility. It relieves us from having to interact in a personal way, one-on-one, -on -one, for us to have to have a conversation, for us to have to experience emotions because this category is wrong. This, this box is broken. Does that make sense? So we oftentimes, we don't want to acknowledge or deal with or even think about what the real reasons or the, the personal reasons might be because the categorical reasons are enough and they alleviate us from having to feel any sort of pain or emotions. 
oftentimes we focus on the surface argument, but there's a deeper issue. And honestly, the same thing is true when it comes to faith. And we've been talking about this idea of outgrowing God and and. What does it mean when we learn about who God is as we're kids and these cute Bible stories and songs and then we start to get older and we have real life problems where people that are good people that don't deserve wrong to happen to them have pain. Where this marriage that we thought was going to be forever splits, where we lose jobs that we've invested our life and our time into and, and we've done the right thing but it's still somehow We've lost that job now, and all of a sudden, these things that, that we thought that we knew about who God was and that he was always on our side, and he, he always has nothing but good things to give me, and, and, and we kind of have these pictures of, of faith and a relationship with God and creation and science and, and all these different things, and as we get older, we experience different things. We learn different things. We have conversations with people outside of our parents, and all of a sudden, our faith starts to feel this tension and I think a lot of times what happens is we don't want to be honest about the questions or the frustrations or the doubts that we have about our faith. I think a lot of times we would rather just kind of categorically make broad statements and sweeping statements. When it comes to outgrowing God or giving up on church or avoiding Christians, there's always emotional roots underneath any intellectual feelings that we have, any philosophical feelings that we have. And I'm grateful that we are the kind of church, and, and we talk about this a lot, but we're the type of church where people, we, and if you haven't heard me say this yet, I apologize because it's, it's a big deal for us, but we believe that you can belong here at South Hills before you believe in God, before you believe in who Jesus is, before you believe what I believe. You don't have to believe before you belong. We believe that you can come and belong, and there's people that call this home, that are not sure what they believe. And I love that. And this message that we have today is really kind of for people on, on whichever side of that journey you might feel like you're personally on, there's always emotional roots and emotional reasons beneath our philosophical or our intellectual reasons. We've heard people say things like, oh, Christian beliefs aren't based in reality, or science doesn't back the Bible, one thing I've heard over and over again is faith is for the weak-minded. A loving God would never let bad things happen to people. All Christians are hypocrites. Um, the whole thing is just about controlling people. These are all categorical statements that people make about Christianity, about God, about, about faith. And the problem is, is that there's aspects of those statements that are not necessarily wrong. People have experienced some of those things under the name of God and under the name of Christianity. And so to say that's not true, well, it is true. I've felt it. They told me. I knew one person that um, she's an adult now, married with five kids, but when she was in high school, she was a part of a church, she was a part of a leadership team, she led a junior high Bible study and and she had this experience where she went on a date and she made a bad decision and she got pregnant. And her church had her stand on the stage and read a letter confessing her sins and then she wasn't allowed to come back. And she didn't come back to church ever, well, not ever, she didn't come back for like 20 years. 
because in her mind, she was not allowed to be there. Categorically, the church has said, I am not welcome. And that's just one story of one person that I know. There's people that have these categorical understandings of Christianity, of God, of, of, of church that are based in emotions and feelings and personal experiences. And what happens is that they say, well, that's how all churches are, which we know and we hope isn't true. But a lot of times we argue with their categorical statements with categorical reasons. And it's just one box fighting another box. And I don't know if that picture makes any sense, but it's like, no, they're not. Yes, they are. It's like, well, they're both kind of true and kind of false. They're sweeping generalizations behind every statement, philosophical, intellectual, otherwise. Behind every statement is a story. And unfortunately, most Christians would rather argue statements than engage with stories. It is easier and cleaner and faster to just give your statement than it is to sit with somebody who has been told and made to believe that they are not welcome at church because of a decision they made when they were 16. That is a messy conversation. It is not a quick one. That's not a, hey, let's grab a coffee and we'll wrap this up. I got another. I mean, that's like, that's an ongoing conversation. It's easier for us to rather with, to, to argue statements rather than to engage stories. When a person makes a categorical statement, our default is to defend the category. No, that's not how church is. No, that's not what Christianity believes. No, that's not what God is. It's easier for us to defend the category, but categories don't need to be defended. People do. And that's what we see Jesus do over and over and over and over and over again. And this is something that I continue to struggle with, even as a husband, there's a lot of times when my, my wife will tell me about how she's experienced something or felt something, and, and over and over again, I mess this up, and I find myself defending this category instead of just sitting with and listening to the way that she feels. And then she feels like, well, you're just taking the side of the category. You're just taking that side. You're just arguing for it. You're just defending that thing. Instead of me being willing to take the time and engage in the conversation. Categories don't need to be defended, but people do. The reality is that there's people that have given up on God. There's people that have given up on church. There's people that have given up on Christians. Not because of intellectual reasons or philosophical reasons alone, but because of personal experiences. We need to engage with people on an emotional level, but it's easier to obsess about the philosophical and just avoid the personal. So uh, there's an author, Thomas Engel. Um, he's an atheist and academic, and he wrote this book called The Last Word. And he said this. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent people I know are religious believers. This is a quote that is fascinating to me for a number of reasons, and we don't really have time to get into all of it, and this isn't, today is not about atheism versus Christianity. We're not talking about categories. He says, I want atheism to be true, which is different than saying, I believe atheism is true, and I'm, un 
I'm uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent people I know are religious believers. There's a big difference between I believe it and I want to believe it. There's a, a big difference between I don't believe it and I don't want to believe it. There's, there's differences there that are critical. And for this author and academic, this person that is much smarter than I am and probably ever will be, for him to say I want atheism to be true and I'm uneasy by the fact that there are people that I know that I'm close with that are religious believers or some of the smartest people I know. It's not an argument about what's right or what's wrong. It's a, it's a reality that inside of this person, and I would, I would argue that inside each of us, there is a philosophical belief or a, a categorical belief, and there are emotional feelings. And whichever side, I'm going to say fence, even though I don't really think that there's a clear dividing line necessarily, but whichever side of the fence you might find yourself on, whichever side of the room, we'll make this side the, the Christians and this side, never mind, I'm just, I'm just playing. Uh, whichever side you find yourself on, there are categories that you believe and that you want to fight for and that you want to put out there. And there are also emotional reasons, but you rarely, it's hard to argue emotions because it's personal. It's what you've experienced. There's a big difference between I believe and I want to believe. Blaise Pascal, um, he said this, he says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. I don't think very many of us are on necessarily a truth quest. I don't know if uh, people that are saying, I just want to know what the truth is. I'm just looking for the truth. I just want to know what the truth is. I think the reality is that most of us, are want, we want to be happy. Uh, we want to feel fulfilled. And we want to feel purpose. And I don't know if we would necessarily be willing to sacrifice that for truth. I think that's the reality for all of us, wherever you find yourself on the faith journey. We're looking for what fulfills us, what makes us happy. St. Augustine said, we love the truth when it enlightens us, and we hate the truth when it convicts us. I mean, truth is one of those things that, I mean, yeah, truth is good and inconvenient a lot of times, painful a lot of times, difficult a lot of times. And so there's this aspect of, of who we are that we, we think in categorical situations, a philosophical, and we also have personal experiences and emotions. We have both. We exist in both. We live both. We usually argue categories, but oftentimes the foundation of what we believe is in our emotions. It's in our personal experiences, and we've experienced this, and so now I'm going to figure out why that's true, and you build an understanding based off of what you've personally felt. A lot of times we address uh, emotional, well, let me back up. So for the rest of the next 10 minutes, I want to talk to kind of two different groups, if I can be as crass as to separate to two groups. I think it's a little bit more nuanced than that, but bear with me. This is, and let me just pause. <laughs> this has been a challenging message to write. I have like struggled with this like I have not struggled with a lot of messages. And I don't really know what that is. 
But I say that because I was still up at 4 a.m. working through this this morning because this is a big deal, and it's important to me, and I really think that it's important to God. This idea of categories and statements and personal feelings and experiences. I think it's a big deal to God. There's a passage in John 8 that I felt like was really important for us. And this would be for, for those of you that feel like you're a, a follower of Jesus. For those of you that feel like you have said, you know what, I'm in. I believe this way. I want to live this way. Um, Jesus is my Savior. I have given my life over to him. If you feel like you're in that category, this is the group that I want to talk to for just a minute. If you're not in that category, you should listen because you can throw this in their face whenever you want uh, so that you should enjoy this also, but for different reasons. Jesus returns to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple, kind of like me this morning, early back at the temple. Just kidding. I didn't mean to draw a line between me and Jesus. But I mean, if you get there on your own personal, emotional plane, I'm just kidding. Uh, A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd, which is interesting that they brought the woman that was caught in the act of adultery. I don't know where the man was. Am I right, ladies? I thought I'd get a little bit more out of that one. Jeez. Uh, Verse 4 says, Teacher, they said to Jesus, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. So what do you say? Here is a really convenient category. It is not even disputable. The law of Moses, which you claim to believe says that she deserves to be stoned. So what do you want us to do, oh rabbi? I mean, you can sense what's happening here. You can sense the trap that they're trying to set. Verse 6, you don't even have to sense it. It says it. They were trying to trap him into saying something that they could use against him. But Jesus stoops down, which is interesting, after last week's message talking about God stooping down. Jesus stoops down and he wrote in the dust with his finger. And they kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and he said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And then he stoops down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slip away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. And then Jesus stood up again and he said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. This is a passage, I mean, I've probably heard it a million different times, and maybe you guys have as well, but this passage is really difficult because There is a category or a box in which these people wanted to do what was legally and religiously right. And they wanted Jesus to come up with a different category to fight their category with. And instead, he wrote in the sand. (laughs) Instead, 
he worked outside of a category and went personal and emotional and said, okay, and whichever one of you hasn't screwed up can go first. Instead of engaging with this categorical or this philosophical, this religious truth, that is a, it's a, it was the law, he ends up standing personally with this woman and engaging personally with the people that are trying to start an argument, with the people that have this category, this perfect box. And I would say that for us, we often address emotional and personal issues that people have. I think a lot of times we quote laws and commandments and we don't engage them personally. It is really easy, it's really easy to interpret what the Bible says about divorce and see that it's wrong and then it's different when you are engaging with somebody that is in the middle of a marriage that is blowing apart from the inside. There's a category and then when you know that person's name, there's a difference. It's really easy to, to find verses in the Bible that condemn certain types of sexuality and different types of actions and relationships. But when you know that person's name and they're in your family, it's not a category anymore. There's a person and there's emotions and there's something altogether different. And so I have to, I have to look at the story, at the story of, of who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And somehow he didn't say that that law isn't true, he just engaged on a personal level and said, here's where we're at. And which one of you has not sinned? And then he tells her, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. He invites her to leave this life, commands her to, to live a different lifestyle, go a different way but we're not going to talk about the categories. When we address personal issues with categorical responses, it requires nothing of us. We just quote the verse. We quote a truth. We quote a quote. We quote whatever it is, and it requires nothing of us because we just get to throw it out there, and then we can walk away. But when we stand with people, when us as followers of Jesus, when we engage with somebody that has had an experience with a church or with a Christian or where they felt like God has failed them or let them down, what would it look like for us to be like, well, you're wrong because here's what's true. Instead of doing that, what would it look like for us to say, man, help me understand. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. That conversation that I had with that woman who got pregnant as a teenager, I spent the entire first conversation, not fakely, not in a, in a false way, but just I felt so bad for, on behalf, I felt bad for her. I apologized as many times as I could on behalf of the church of Jesus. It had nothing to do with the decision that she had made. 
When we address personal issues with categorical responses, it requires nothing of us. We think there's a, there's a chapter on this category. Let me just flip there and find the answer. There's a, there's a verse that answers this question. Let me just flip there and find the answer. There's a, there's a box for this one. I've already decided what I believe for this situation, so let me just get to that box. I'll pull it off the shelf and, and dust off what I remember learning 14 years ago, and, and I'll just kind of try and rehash some of that. Instead of engaging with a person, Jesus calls this woman to leave her choices, leave her sin, leave this lifestyle behind, but he stood with her. He engaged with her personally first. So for the second group, if you are skeptical or agnostic or seeking or whatever category you would put yourself in, if you have not yet said, man, I'm all in, I believe that Jesus is the way, I'm into this, if, if you wouldn't put yourself in the first group, the second group, I, just a few questions. I don't have Bible verses for you, just a few questions. Um, could it be that while you may have philosophical reasons for not believing, categorical reasons for not believing, could it be that there is a root that has to do with emotions and your personal experiences? And if you know somebody, if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus and you know people, I would love for you to think about those people and just consider, man, they don't want to hear anything I've got to say. They don't want to come to church with me. They don't want to blah, blah, blah. Consider that, yes, they have philosophical reasons, but I wonder if there's personal, I wonder if there's root in emotion or personal experiences. I think the three main primary emotional experiences and personal reasons are as follows. I think the first one is pain from our past. Pain from our past. I think for a lot of people, that keeps them from engaging with God, with the church, with Christianity. And I don't need to tell too many stories. I think you guys have all heard of or experienced or have you seen the news segments about people, Christians that have done things and pastors that have, I mean, we don't have to try that hard to imagine what that looks like. You've experienced things or people close to you have experienced things that have been incredibly painful either by Christians or maybe the church has done things that have been painful. Maybe you feel like God has hurt you specifically. You feel like God has failed me. God has failed my family. God has failed. And there's pain there. And there's a reason why you distrust. There's a reason why you have withdrawn and found philosophical reasons and categories to, to be your foundation because it, it, it's hard to engage with pain. It's hard to, to bring up some of those experiences and some of those memories. Second thing I think that a lot of us deal with in any group you might find yourself in is distrust and authority. You've been taken advantage of by a person or a system. And because you have had that experience, 
it is difficult for you to trust authority. It's difficult for you to give up authority. And maybe it's difficult for you to, to even go to a Bible study because you don't want to trust the person that's leading the Bible study. Or maybe it's difficult to come to church because you don't want to trust the guy that stands on the stage and looks incredibly handsome and like he knows what he's doing uh, because <laughs> he might not. Uh, but there's experiences that have caused you to, to not trust authority. I get that. For the first 15 years of my life, I was in church every single Sunday. My dad was a pastor. And my home life was physically and spiritually and emotionally abusive. And I had to figure out what that meant. Because here's what church is and here's who God is and here's my dad and the pastor and here's all of this that's happening and so there's, there's things that happen to us that cause us to distrust. And my parents split, and we came to California, and I spent a few years doing my own thing, and I've told that story before, and when I was 21, I came back to Jesus, and I was like, I, I need, just need to, I know that I'm a better person with Jesus than I am without. And that Sunday, I was like, I'm going to church. And I usually tell this story that the first church I went to was South Hills. And it's not actually true. There it is. <laughs> Judge me with your categories, people. <laughs> the Sunday before I went to South Hills, I went to another church. And after worship, the pastor got up and read this letter about how he had been having an affair for years. And he was stepping down and that church shut down. That's the church I came back to finally after like, okay, I'm going to try this again. So let's talk about not being able to trust authority. Let's, I mean, we can have those conversations. And when you have those experiences, I get it. But oftentimes, yes, people in authority have abused their power and they will. And there's, there's yes, categorically, that is true. And personally, there's experiences that you have that have been painful, but God is inviting us to something different, and can we begin to engage with and separate the person at that church and separate my dad as a pastor from who God is inviting us to be and, and who God truly is and what he wants the church to be? The third one is a distaste for accountability. I think a lot of people, again, whatever side of the fence that you fall on, nobody wants to be accountable. Nobody likes to feel like they report to somebody um, until you are your own boss. And then you're like, I kind of wish I had a boss. But that's a different thing. Uh, distaste for accountability. There's something inside each of us that craves to be accountable only to ourselves, to be fully autonomous. We don't want to submit to anybody. And this is something that's been true for years and years. Genesis 3, I've talked about this before, but verse 5 and 6, the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent, Satan, is, is talking to Eve, and he says in verse 5, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat the fruit, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil, which is tempting to have no accountability, to be like God, equal to God, knowing what God knows. The woman was convinced. Sorry, women, I was with you on the first half of the message, but I'm pinning the last half to you. I'm just kidding. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, so she wanted the wisdom it would give her. 
So she took some of the fruit and she ate it. She gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. And this initial sin, this initial mistake, this initial temptation was this temptation to not be accountable. This temptation to have just as much as God, to know just as much as God, to, to, to be autonomous in a way. We all want total freedom. We don't want to be accountable. And I think that there's, there's two types of freedom. There's a positive freedom. There's a negative freedom. A negative freedom is a freedom from. It's a freedom from something. And that, it's like, well, that doesn't sound negative. But it's, it's re- refusing any sort of barriers or constraints on our choices. I want freedom. I don't want to have to do what you want me to do. I don't want to have to say what you want me to say. I don't want any sort of barriers or constraints at all. A positive freedom is when we use our freedom to live in a particular way. It's I have freedom and so I get to live this way. I get to, to put my life into actions this way. There's a quote, uh, I think we have another slide. Yeah, freedom isn't having everything that we crave. Freedom is being able to go without the things that we crave and being okay. Freedom isn't having everything that you want. That, that's not what true freedom is. Freedom is being able to go without the things that you want and be okay. Freedom is being able to, to be able to exist and be healthy and be whole without the money that you want and the car and the job and the family and the this and the that and the, the pain-free and, and, and the not knowing the answers, but I'm okay because I have a sense of freedom. And that freedom is, is possible anytime in any place. So I think that a lot of people have philosophical, intellectual reasons for not wanting to engage with the church, with Christianity, with God. And my, my questions are, could it be that there are emotional or personal roots, pain from your past, distrust in authority, or distaste for accountability? James, I don't have this verse on your screen, but James 4 says... Verse 8, come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. And in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. I think this verse in James, written by James, who was the brother of Jesus. I mean, imagine that family dynamic. In the Gospels, it actually talks about how Jesus' family thought that he was crazy and he'd lost his mind. They tried and move him out of certain crowds. They try and talk him out of different things. But ultimately, James comes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And he writes this letter a year or so before he's stoned to death for defending his brother, the Son of God. And I just... I. I I can't help but just kind of picture this familial, this brother relationship, yet at the same time, this understanding of who God is. Come close to God and he will come close to you. He wants to be with you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. 
and then humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. All of this is countercultural to, to the way that we think things work. We think we need to build ourselves up. We think we need to get ourselves right and then Jesus will come. He says, no, come close to God and he will come close to you. And purify your hearts. And when you humble yourself, you're actually going to be lifted up. These categories that we think of don't always make sense. They're impersonal. They have nothing to do with our personal, spiritual experiences. So the, the question as I wrap it up, the band's going to come up in just a minute. A question that I have for us to consider is, what are the stories behind your statements of disbelief? What are the stories behind your statements of belief? Whichever group you find yourself in, what are the categories that you hold up? And have you considered the personal, the emotional underneath those things? It doesn't mean that those are bad things, but we need to be aware of them. We need to be able to engage with them. We cannot battle categories. We can no longer beat each other over the head with philosophical statements. Can we begin to engage the person next to us, the people in front of us. As we close out this series, there's, I, I read this this week, and I just thought it was really powerful. If you guys, you can close your eyes, and I can read this to you. Uh, you can read it along. It'll be on the screen. Whatever, is more, whatever works for you. Um, I'll have Edwin and Ricky come up, and we can close out in just a second. But I want to read this as we consider the idea of outgrowing God, as we consider the idea of what it looks like to renew a sense of awe and wonder and mystery. What would it look like? What would it be like if we as Christians believed that the Bible was written for us to encourage us to think more and not less, to help us develop wisdom so that we can come to conclusions and make decisions maturely on our own, not simply give us answers and rules to follow? What would it look like if the Bible was written for us to engage us in an ongoing struggle to find truth, not to lead us to think that we have all the answers? What would it look like if we believe the Bible was written for us to make us more curious about our world and other areas of learning, like science and literature and the arts, and not less curious? What would it look like to believe that the Bible is to give us material about which we can honestly agree and disagree with one another and not to resolve all disagreements? What would it look like to believe that the Bible is there to force us to trust by taking us deeper into places of mystery and places of wonder rather than taking away all of our doubts and taking away all of our questions? What would it look like if we were to believe that the Bible was a tool more for contemplation and conversation with God and each other rather than just as a handbook for life? or a rule book of doctrines? What would it look like if, if we believe that the Bible was written for us to form us into people who are more authentically human and more involved in the world, not less involved in the world? If the Bible was written for us to enable us to find more common ground with our neighbors, not less common ground? 
If the Bible was written for us to help us focus fully on fulfilling the greatest commandment of loving God and our neighbors, what would it be like? Curiosity is the most beautiful place for us to start. It's not with categories. It's not with boxes. It's with an imagination of, man, I don't understand suffering. At that point, we can have a box of there's no way that God would allow suffering, so therefore there's no God. Or we can become curious and say, let's have conversations. Man, I don't understand science and evolution and creation and Genesis 1. And, and so we can either say it's all nonsense or we can say, man, I'm, gonna, I'm curious about this. Let's have this conversation. We can engage in relationships with people that maybe are making decisions that you don't want them to make, you don't think they should make. And instead of us saying, man, these people need help, maybe we can say, man, I, I need to be with this person. I need to sit with this person. What would it look like for us to approach our faith, our relationship with God, our understanding of the scriptures, our understanding of each other from a place of curiosity and who they are and who they are as a person, not just in the categories and the boxes that are easy to, to throw out there and they don't, they don't require anything of us. Curiosity is a beautiful place to start. If you guys will bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, there is no end to the number of things that we could talk about. There's no end to the number of questions that we have. The, the beauty of who you are, God, the mysteries and the unknown, we could go on and on and on. But God, over the last few weeks, I've, my hope is that you have brought us to a place where we can begin to just have conversations, where we can walk away from the simple, clean categories and begin to engage each other and begin to be honest about ourselves, about what we believe and what we don't believe and what we struggle with and what we need to learn to trust you in where there aren't answers that make us happy. So God, would you give us the strength to continue moving forward as followers of Jesus that are willing to be messy, that are willing to have messy conversations, that are willing to be honest with ourselves and honest with, our, with, with the others around us. God, would this church be a place where people that come in the doors can feel like they can be authentic and fully who they are? And God, would we be authentic? this be a place where people can belong before they believe? God, we ask that you would bless us by making us that type of community, making us that type of church. In Jesus' name, amen.